listener and welcome to the Metacast Crypto Corner brought to you by Navic. I'm your host, Nicola Vreke, or Nico for short, and today I have the absolute pleasure to be joined by Robbie Young, CEO at Animoca Brands. Robbie, welcome and thanks for joining me. Hi, Nico. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. And I'm, uh, I'm especially excited to have you on because as a member of the crypto gaming team at Bitcraft, I often get asked a lot, of, asked a lot of very difficult questions, and now I can just you know pass <laughs> oh, those no. over to you and <laughs> get your thoughts. Um, yeah, let, let's dive uh, right in. Um, how do you usually describe any Mocha brands to somewhere to someone outside of the the crypto and the gaming hmm. industry? Sure, um, I think um, the. Short and sweet is I tell them we make games, <laughs> and then, and then I think I think what I try to do is you know I, I say to them what we're doing is we're making games in a new area which is which is at the intersection of blockchain uh, and entertainment um, because blockchain games are kind of a new thing um, you know for most people but for us I think it's it's what we live for at this point because for us it's a very very exciting time where. Games and the internet in general are undergoing a huge transformation as a result of the implementation of blockchain. Um, so we think mm -hmm. that we're kind of on the cutting edge of, of this transformation within the game industry. Couldn't agree more. But uh, Animoca Brands wasn't always so focused on blockchain gaming, right? Um, at some point a few years ago, you made a, a pivot. Could you tell a bit more sure. about one what you were doing before that and then why you decided to, to make this shift? Sure. Um, so we've been involved in games in one way or another for a very long time, probably 20 years and more so for, for Yat, our co-founder. Um, and we had, you know, we'd made some PC games and console games, but that was not the primary business. Um, and then in 20, 2009, um, we officially, you know, um, Yat, the co-founder, sold his previous enterprise messaging business and focused exclusively on games. And as you'll recall, that was the dawn of, of mobile. So the focus there was to do um, mobile gaming. And we were a primarily a casual free-to-play studio. Um, and so we built, I think, quite a healthy franchise around casual free-to-play games on mobile, um, particularly focused on the area of brands, hence the name of the company, um, because one of our key strategies was partnering with licensed brands. So we would license their IP and we would create original games featuring their IP. Um, and in fact, that's um, that was a similar strategy per, um, pursued by a company called Pixel that we acquired many years later, um, with whom now we have made a product called the Sandbox. Um, so we share that that DNA, I guess, in terms of our backgrounds. And in 2017, we had the opportunity to partner with um, a company called Axiom Zen, who was working on a hackathon project of creating a game on blockchain, and, and that game turned out to be CryptoKitties. So we were uh, the publishers of CryptoKitties in Greater China, um, partnering with them on that project. Um, and it was kind of our introduction to the possibilities of using blockchain in games. And it was, I don't know, I think, I guess it was kind of life-changing for us because it was one of those things that when we saw it, we were just like, well, this, this just makes sense, you know? We're, we're not asking consumers to do anything different. We're essentially saying, look, you know, come and buy your virtual currency and spend your virtual currency for virtual items in our game. And it just so happens that virtual currency is a fungible ERC-20 token and those in-game items are NFTs, um, playable NFTs. But at the end of the day, we're not asking consumers to do anything new, just have a better experience. Um, and I think that really resonated on the one hand, 
And on the other hand, you know, we're game developers, we're mercenary, we're always looking for new way, new revenue streams. And so I think the other thing that really dawned on us was that in the wake of that sort of ICO boom of 2017, um, there were, you know, lots and lots of customers around the world holding tokens in projects that had yet to deliver any utility. And so we thought, look, you know, if we make games that accept tokens, will they spend their tokens in our games? And, you know, it was really a hunt for new streams of revenue, I think, that drove us in that direction. And, <clears throat> and that was how the idea started. Um, and so it was quite simple at first. Um, but then, you know, as we came to understand the technology more and as the industry progressed, um, I think it's become something much bigger. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the ICO boom. Um, this is a question I've been I've been thinking about quite a lot, and I'd, I'd love to have your thoughts. How much do you think the current crypto gaming boom is influenced by the profits that people have made that were just you know early and lucky in you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin or other uh, projects during the the 2017 era? So I think <clears throat> it actually it, it does have an influence for sure. Um, but I think actually the much bigger influence is the general interest in crypto as a result of inflation from pandemic government spending. I think that's the big one, um, because I think that that's been the biggest boon to overall crypto investment, particularly Bitcoin and to a lesser extent Ethereum. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of been the rising tide that lifted interest in crypto. And then once you start looking at what you can do in crypto, well, you know, Bitcoin's not very exciting. <laughs> you know, you buy it and then you sell it and then you buy it. Mm -hmm. um, but games can be fun. And so it's a way for people to um, to engage with with an interest that they have. Yeah, totally. Like myself, I, uh, I got into crypto through Bitcoin. As an economist, I was very much, you know, I saw myself in the Austrian economic side where, you know, anti-inflationary um, and just Bitcoin made a lot of sense. Um, talking about, you know, all of the new possibilities that blockchain brings to games what excites you most i i have written down like shortly like a, a non-exhaustive list you have real ownership of game assets you mm -hmm. have community player ownership of the game itself through governance tokens uh there's the you know potential for interoperability um composability what do you think is key for you um what excites you most about hmm. what blockchain can bring to games so all those things are cool um but i think actually the most exciting thing is the idea, and this is going to be really boring, and I'm going to show my age here, but the most exciting <laughs> thing is that um, the idea that when gamers spend money in games, they don't lose it all. Hmm. It's just that simple, I think. It's the idea that when I play a game, I can actually now recycle my old digital content just the way I used to do with my cartridges or my DVDs or my CDs. There's a secondhand market for my digital items. And, and I think this is important because it's nowhere near as sexy as content interoperability and all that other stuff. But the fundamental benefit of ownership is that there is some residual value in what I buy. And mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of um, focus from the market on the speculative aspect. Oh, I'm going to buy this piece of rare content and it may go up in value. Uh, but I think actually the, the, the sea change for the industry is the fact that if I spend $100 on a game, I might get $1 back because today I'm guaranteed to get zero. And $1 is a big deal 
Because when you think of it on an industry-wide basis, if that means I'll increase my spending in gaming by 10% because I know I'll get 10% back at the end of the day, then we've just moved the needle by $20 billion as an industry. So that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Is that for you already enough of an advantage to bring blockchain to the masses? Or do you th just think this is the most important part, um, but you know we need to make full use of the other benefits that... Uh, blockchain brings us as well. So I think that that's the one that we can assume. I think the base case is that this is going to grow our industry by double-digit percentages, you know, and and I think our industry has been searching for growth, um, frankly, because um, gaming has become so difficult for all but the very biggest or the very smallest players um, that everybody in the middle has been squeezed to the margins. And, and I say that as having been somebody working in the middle for a very long time and struggling mm. there. Um, and, and I think that um, that's, that's, the, that's the base case of what we expect to be delivered. And then when you layer on top of that, the idea that, as you said, you can have the potential for content interoperability, which can have you know, incredible consequences for the amount of fun that gamers can have, the idea that I take something simple, you know, I'm 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 not a big MMO player myself or anything, but I always loved racing games. And one of the things about racing games um, is that historically they've always been siloed. You know, you always have a Formula One game, or you have a you know you have a, a, a rally game, or a MotoGP game, or something like that. But now with content interoperability, you can mash it up. And that's part of the fun that users have. I always want to know what it's like to drive a rally car against a motorcycle in downtown Tokyo, you know? So that's because that's what games are about. That's what the fantasy and the, and the fun is about. And the fact that you can bring your content around from environment to environment, <clears throat> I think will, it will be something that will become so natural um, over time that people will wonder how they just, you know, experienced games as single player um, individual environments in the past mm -hmm. i'm uh, i'm playing advocate of the devil here just to be sure go for um, it but <laughs> you talked about you know ownership of games and and the fact that you when you you know buy a game you you still have a chance to get something in return um a lot of people start considering that together with scarcity as an investment opportunity um Aren't you too concerned that thinking about economics and money and investments too much will take away the fun from games? Not at all, because do you think of it as an investment opportunity when you buy a car, a, a, a DVD for your Xbox? I mean, I if could there's the ten thousand of them, maybe. Uh, well, there are, but they'll keep making them. I mean, they make special editions and things like that. But I think manufactured scarcity is something that we've always had in games. But I think one of the things that has been problematic is that often you find that, you know, for example, in in-game items, there's manufactured scarcity of a particular booster or a particular sword or something like that. But then what happens, you know, six months later, the developer's looking for revenue. So they make more, they make the next scarce item, and then they make the next scarce item. Um, and so it's really a kind of a false promise. Um, I think that people will often speculate on things, just like you find people speculate on physical trading cards, like Panini-style trading cards. Mm -hmm. um, but fundamentally, that's a certain type of user who I think you know, is combining passion with 
whatever their own um, belief that something may be more valuable later, just like people who buy collectible stamps and all kinds of things like that. But I think for the mass market, I think what we're doing is we're presenting an opportunity to participate in an entertainment ecosystem that's much more fair to the player. Because at the end of the day, we're democratizing access to, to games and entertainment through this new medium. I think one of the things that you mentioned, which we didn't touch upon yet, was this idea of player-owned economies. And that's a very, very powerful idea. Um, the idea that you know there can be some... First of all, there's going to be a great deal of ownership, um, <clears throat> and to a lesser extent, a measure of governance and input by the community. Because I think one of the things in games that's um, been difficult for people who are really passionate about certain games is that they generally have a limited lifespan because developers stop supporting games after a certain period of time when it either becomes not economical for them to continue to do so or sometimes the developer just gets bored and they want to you know the team wants to work on a new project and move on but for the players who are part of that community what do they do you know once they've played the game there's no new content coming out necessarily and you've got all those people there and they are a community but they're a community with no power because they have no agency over the future of their shared interest. Whereas in the case of a game that has you know, um, community ownership through a DAO or some other blockchain-based mechanism, they have the ability then to have an actual economy. So if the developer gets tired of supporting the game, you know, theoretically, it's possible for them to hire a new developer to support their game for them because it puts the community first as opposed to the whims of the developer. And that's actually, I think, a much more fair environment for players. Mm -hmm. How realistic do you think that is? That you know, another developer is going to be hired by a community to continue working on the game? I think it's very realistic for successful games because successful games will have the financial power to be able to do so. And if you imagine, if you think in your mind of, you know, what a successful game looks like, those handful of games that people do esports with, you know, League of Legends, mm -hmm. World of Warcraft, etc. Any one of those communities could easily hire the best developers in the world to work on their game because they have such large economies, in-game economies. And with blockchain, we turn them into actual economies. So, you know, there's millions of dollars there to go and spend on development resources. Yeah, that's true. Where do you see, um, you know, you said a bunch of benefits of blockchain gaming. Where do you see this go over the next five years? We're still early today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what part of the gaming industry as a whole will be, you know, touched, sort of say, by, by blockchain games or, or by blockchain technology? Sure. Um, honestly, I think all of it will. I think it's just a matter of time. I think it's a bit like, it's a bit like when we introduced the internet to games, you know. Um, at first, we we thought it was more of a feature to have an online game, um, and now all games are online because that's just the way it is. And <clears throat> the same thing happened with multiplayer and etc. So I think that blockchain will just become part of the plumbing, and it will cease to be a feature. Um, you know, somewhere three to five years from now, and it will just be part of how games are. Um, and I also think that the mechanics of using blockchain will recede further and further into the background um, of user interface design. So, <clears throat> you know, we'll abstract things like wallets and the, you know, the way in which we possess and, um, and import and export um, 
owned content, um, I think will all evolve over time into much more user-friendly fashions. Right now, I think we have a, a variety of different systems that have been you know, built as siloed projects and people are working really hard to try to smooth those interactions between ecosystems and chains and projects. Um, and, and it will happen over time. I think the most, I, I get the, the most excited when I look at the amount of progress that we've made as an industry just in the last two years since we started to gather ma garner mainstream attention. <clears throat> and when you look at what happened, what's happened in that period of time, I think, you know, I get very excited about what the next two or three years holds because the pace of progress is, is astounding. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, how do you see current free to play evolve? Like, uh, with you know in a blockchain gaming world where where like how does free to play work sure um i think that i'm i'm seeing lots of teams now experimenting um one of the areas that i see more traction on at the moment is experimenting with trying to keep um two different types of communities engaged in a in a game economy at the same time um so a free to play community and essentially a blockchain community um, this is happening mm -hmm. more on mobile, I find. Um, and the idea is to try to find a way to onboard users who may be firmly Web2 users and not and kind of think of how to migrate them into a Web3 experience. <clears throat> so for example, one of the things that we did is we have a, we have a studio called Gamey um, that's created a series of mobile games called Arc8. And the idea was to take a, a suite of casual games and offer blockchain-based rewards um, as prizes for people who have achievements in the games and people who are on the top of the leaderboards. So it's more of a, a traditional incentive scheme in, um, mm -hmm. in traditional games. But what happens is that those blockchain-based rewards um, can then be spent on collectible NFTs. And, <clears throat> and the N collectible NFTs are, you know, they're robots with parts. And so you can collect all the parts and build them. And so there's a whole collecting mechanic there, which is kind of a metagame layered on top of the core casual gameplay. And then once you collect those robots, then there's going to be another game subsequently, which you can use those robots in, which is more of a mid-core style game. So the idea is to see if we can bring users on a journey, onboarding them through a relatively casual experience and then interesting them in blockchain by giving them rewards, and then interesting them in NFTs by giving them something to spend those rewards on, and then interesting them in a more you know in-depth experience because here's how you can use those NFTs that you have. I like that strategy. Taking a step back, um, Animoca has been making a large, very large number of acquisitions and investments over the past years. Um, could you talk a bit more broadly about your strategy within sure. the, the blockchain gaming world? What are you building with, with the company? Sure. <clears throat> so I think first and foremost, one of the things that we want to do is we want to ensure that there is um, an open and multi-chain competitive ecosystem environment. Um, so we you know, very much try to put our money where our mouth is in this philosophy and support projects across the ecosystem, regardless of what chain they're on, um, regardless of what kind of environment they're developing in, because we think that this multi-chain ecosystem um, and having interoperability amongst chains is very, very important to the health of keeping everything open. 
Um, because we think that's where you know the success of blockchain has come from is this idea of open and composable assets, the idea that you know we don't we we build great products, but the ability to innovate on top of our neighbors' products is also a key superpower of blockchain um, and the open source community, and <clears throat> and so our investment strategy has been similar to that. You know, we invest in um, game companies for for the purpose of majority investments that's growing our studio business so we will acquire game studios who make great games but in terms of our minority investing activity those are strategic investments where we invest in companies that are essentially building great stuff and enhancing the ecosystem so we'll invest in other game companies who are building great web3 games or web2 game companies where we can partner with them to help them on that journey to web3 um, or what we call ecosystem investments, where um, they are, you know, kind of the picks and shovels of the blockchain game industry. People who are making, you know, layer one chains, layer two scaling solutions, wallets, DeFi, you know, protocols, things that we would either be partners of or customers of, um, or who could benefit from working with other companies that we've invested in. How actively do you try to orchestrate interoperability in between Animoca brands and companies you invest in? Uh, every day. <laughs> it's, okay. a, it's a constant struggle to try to do as much as we can. Um, and I mm -hmm. think that it happens on many different levels. And obviously the, the sort of holy grail is being able to have true content portability between environments mm -hmm. and that's the hardest um, <clears throat> we're currently working on that with several of our titles um, but i think it's you know it's much easier to foster cooperation for example of companies that are building tools and building games for example and putting them together um, or company or doing things like um, fungible token um, marketing events, staking events, and things like that, where we can cross-pollinate game communities. Um, so we try to do as much as we can. Mm -hmm. If you know your job is to foster that within the companies you invest in, how likely do you think it is we'll see interoperability in between you know projects and games that are completely unrelated? Oh, I think it's very likely. I think the the key aspect is for us as an industry to try to establish certain kinds of standards because that interoperability is going to require those standards um, in the short to medium term most of it is going to take the form of individual agreements between game environments um, so for example you know we do a lot of interoperability between um, the sandbox which has a lot of traction at the moment um, and mm -hmm. other titles um, but the sandbox has a very different art style than most other titles. And so interoperability has to be thought of through the lens of, well, how do I take my, you know, immaculately 3D rendered item in one, in one environment and bring it into the sandbox where it's a 2D sort of pixelated art style? Um, and what does that mean? Is there a translation mechanism for it? Or does it happen on a bespoke basis just between these two games? Um, and how do I handle things like you know the amount of um, the amount of power that my character has in one environment. Does it then become powerless when I bring it into the other environment? So there's a lot of things that need to be thought about, and, and um, as an industry, we're working on it. But I think it's so early still that we're all you know 
trying to do that while juggling getting our own products right to begin with. <laughs> yes. And also communicating to the broader gaming industry that blockchain technology is not the devil. <laughs> yes. Destroy fun in games. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, what is the value proposition that you present to companies you want to invest in? I mean, um, I'm, I'm an investor in the gaming crypto gaming space myself i know that there's a lot of money looking for you know productive use in good games right now um mm -hmm. what is what like how, how do you you know sell hmm. animoca brands as sure. an investor to to a potential uh, sure company? I, I think i think for us it's a relatively easy sale compared to pure financial investors because um we do represent something different which is we're a builder um so we make games and we understand the challenges involved in making games and we understand the challenges for traditional game companies making that journey to blockchain because we've done it ourselves um, and also i think for people who are relatively early on their blockchain journey um, we represent a reasonable amount of experience because you know i meet with companies every day who ask me oh which blockchain should i build on what wallet should i use all of these choices because there's so much technology available and we have the ability to you know to say to them look we would recommend x y or z on the basis that here talk to my studio who just implemented this last week because we just built a game on polygon or we built a game on solana or we have this thing going on immutable so you know talk to them and find out firsthand mm -hmm. what their experience is and oh custodial wallets okay here talk to this studio because we just built this over here for that and and I think that kind of experience is something that's very helpful um, for companies, and I think really differentiates us as a as an in, as an investor. You know, not just providing capital or or high level introductions. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. What do you look for in a company or a team um, or a game to invest in? Um, I think <clears throat> first and foremost, I think. There has to be a shared philosophy, meaning we have to be comfortable that they really understand what it means to put blockchain into a game and to build a blockchain game. And and I say that because you know there's been an increasing number of traditional game companies who are now putting blockchain into their business plans to fund their games. And mm -hmm. you know, fair play. That's it's a great way to get funded at the moment, and I would do the same. Mm -hmm. But I think in talking to those teams some of them have really embraced and understood what it means to build in the blockchain universe and others still don't quite get it they're basically just putting you know creating in-game items as nfts but there there's no interoperability there's no you know there's no sense of being part of a wider community and i think that's what blockchain is at its heart um, so i think we look at shared mindset from the team uh, obviously experience and um and access to resources because you know blockchain development resources are extremely scarce these days um <clears throat> and and innovation i think you know like any, everybody else we love to see great ideas and i think we're still early enough in the cycle that i see completely novel concepts all the time um, and mm. that's exciting i agree i still we I, I think I believe we still haven't found like a game that uses blockchain to the maximum, to like the full extent of, and all of its possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, very excited to discover it. 
Um, how do you think around when making an investment, um, tokens versus equity? Um, what is your, do you have a general stance as, as a company or is that uh, something you decide on on a case by case basis? I guess it's a case by case basis, although um, we would, I think we believe very strongly in a path to tokenization. So I think that we would probably be less interested in, in a pure equity investment where there was no intention of tokenization in the future, just because mm -hmm. that doesn't feel aligned with the overall mission. Makes sense. Do you see a tokenized world where almost all company equity will be in some way, you know, put as tokens on the blockchain and way more freely interchangeable? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just a matter of it's just a matter of regulators, financial regulators, mm -hmm. um, agreeing on standards. I agree. Um, because there's going to have to be regulation. I mean, if people are tokenizing their equity, you should be producing prospect financial prospectuses and screening investors. I mean, there's a process for this so that you don't take advantage of people. Um, but it, it, there, unfortunately, we don't have great standards for that yet. But it, we're getting there. We're getting there. Are you actively talking to regulators about these things? We, we're always talking to regulators, yes. Well, because also we feel like it's incumbent on people who are, you know, bigger players in the sector um, to be mm -hmm. always doing that to help push the space forward. Um, we need to do that because I think if we don't educate regulators, what we end up with is poor regulation because they don't understand exactly what we're trying to do. And we need to impress upon them that we're not bad actors, you know. This is just new mm -hmm. technology and it's a new way of doing something, but it, you know, it should be embraced for all the great things it can do. Mm -hmm. On one hand, uh, I understand that regulators get concerned when, you know, governance tokens are sold as securities um, to anyone who wants them. And, but on the other hand, I think, you know, I can see a world where a lot of people earn quite a lot of money just by, you know, working in the metaverse and perhaps even playing games. Um, do you think we'll be paying income taxes on our SLP um, <clears throat> gains yes. in the future? Yes, I think so. Well, and I think it's I think it's fair that we do, um, you know, because mm -hmm. a job is a job, and so we have to have a we have to have a foundation of of law and what it means to have a job and to provide those services. Um, I think we're just starting to now blend on and offline worlds. Um, I do think though that along alongside that your taxes should pay for your internet connection and everybody should have an internet connection. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, you know, there's give and take. Um, yeah. So, uh, but definitely, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. We talked about you know, making investments in, in, in tokens earlier. Um, one of the advantages of tokens is that they're more easily liquidatable in, as in, like compared mm -hmm. to just private equity. Um, how do you, as a as as a company, think about you know potential? You, at some point, you know you you you're vested. You can you can sell your tokens. Um, how do you think around that? How do you manage um, these, these kind of things? Um, sure. Within the networks you invest in. Um, <clears throat> well, simply put, um, we don't we don't really sell tokens. Um, so we're we're long term holders, um, and this is because. I think that you know it's still too early to have this conversation from our perspective. I mean, this is more a conversation for several years from now, just because we think everything is headed in one direction, which is up. Um, and so we're very bullish on the sector. Um, the other thing that's different about tokens is that 
tokens do have utility. So being a token owner um, is not just necessarily a buy and hold experience, but to maximize the value of being a token holder, there's work involved. So you need to, you know, if you've got that SLP, you should be staking it or you should be generating axes. You should be, you know, investing in the ecosystem to maximize your return from being a token holder. Being a passive bystander is kind of missing the trick. Um, so I think that <clears throat> for companies who are managing, um, you know, uh, crypto on their balance sheet, um, that's a very active role as a very as opposed to a passive role. So does that mean that you have a team that's responsible <clears throat> for actively managing your liquid positions, staking, and all these kind of things? Yes, that's really interesting. Okay, cool. All right, my next question um, it was going to be a relatively open question, but I decided to spice it up a little bit and, and make it a bit harder for you. Um, it is a would you rather question. And so the question is, would you rather only build on Ethereum, including all layer twos and sidechains, or never build on Ethereum, <laughs> build on any, any other layer one and, and, and you know, so... That's the question. You can take some time to to consider. Sure, answer, I, but, I uh, think honestly, uh, if if that was a you know if it's a binary choice like that mm -hmm. today, then obviously mm -hmm. it would be Ethereum and and layer twos, and and but that's not a function of technology. That's actually a function of liquidity and where the market is. Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you want to build products where the customers are, and that's the most important thing. And most of the customers have congregated around Ethereum for various reasons they have the most it has the most momentum um i don't know that that's going to be you know permanent um but at this moment in time yeah it's where the customers are i agree it's um one of the foundational strengths of blockchains is this concept of composability and i think you know composability being able to take code and just reuse it for whatever application you want it yourself um and it feels like it's that composability strengthens network effects even more. Yes. Because the more developers you have on your chain, the more code they write, the more solutions they build, the more composability and the faster you can evolve. Absolutely agree. Yeah. But you still, you do see a multi-chain world where, um, you know, you have the Ethereum ecosystem and then the Solana ecosystem. And so oh, on. for sure. For sure. I mean... You know, because also Ethereum's not necessarily the best technical solution, as people are very, very quick and eager to point out. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I think it is possible that better technical solutions will come come by, and <clears throat> but it will be it will take time for the market and users to adopt better technology in lieu of you know liquidity. So if you look at how many great auction sites are there on the internet, but people are still going to eBay because there's a customer base, even though mm -hmm. the UI may be, you know, circa 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my next questions are, are slightly more philosophical, but I, I'd love to have your thoughts on those. Um, why do you think Web3 is important, not only for games, but also for the future of the internet more broadly? Sure, um, I think it's all about democratizing access. And it's about um, it's about financial inclusion. So I think the thing about Web three that is um, extremely exciting. I mean, I'll give you a I'll give you a personal example. So I've you know I go to conferences and and meet people who are developing in the space. And having been to technology conferences for 
25, almost 30 years, um, this is the first time in my career that I meet entrepreneurs from the African continent at conferences. And that says something, you know, why, why are they coming to conferences now and they never did before? Well, it's because blockchain actually has lower barriers to entry than pretty much any other technology in the past. And it's because it has finance built into the box, so to speak. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to have access to venture capitalists from Sand Hill Road. Um, you can build a blockchain business and you can fund it over the internet and you can create great stuff basically in a bubble somewhere with an internet connection with no no other financial infrastructure around you. It's why, you know, I think that that stat about Axie Infinity you know, having spawned more SLP wallets in the Philippines than there are credit cards, I think that says it all. Um, mm-hmm. And and it it changes everything. It changes things like like the idea of what it means to be an esports athlete, because you no longer need to live in a big urban center where you can get sponsorship to support your your profession. Um, you can just be the best at a game and win the prize pool at the end of the game, and still sit in your parents, you know, in your parents' front room and playing that game. So I think the idea that this extends um, financial inclusion into every corner of the internet um, is, is, I mean, it's amazing, frankly. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just making mm-hmm. games, which is far less important than, than the import of what that means. Yeah, that's true. How do you think about play, to earn, uh, play and earn <clears throat> and blockchain gaming as a potential solution for UBI or universal basic income? Um, I think that the idea of it as a supplementary income source is tremendous. And to be able to um, be able to participate in game economies as, um, as a kind of a gig economy alternative, I think that's great. I mean, the idea that you can go and spend time working in games rather than having to you know, um, deliver restaurant meals or do some kind of potentially more hazardous outdoor work, I think is a great option for people. Um, and so I think that that will definitely thrive. And you say supplementary income. Um, the way I look at things is I can see a world where through technology and automation, more and more people will not be able to, you know, find a traditional, what we consider a traditional work. Um, do you see games as a potential you know replacement of these these traditional jobs where people can you know spend the majority of their time working in possibly yes yes i don't know i don't know how pervasive that can become but yes absolutely because i think mm-hmm. that games are just a form of interactive entertainment and to figure out how to how to work with people at a distance is something that we've been doing since the 80s you know, since the idea of outsourced call centers and more and more work behind the scenes of websites and businesses that we transact with online is happening in a decentralized fashion. And so what blockchain does is it enables that to happen on an even more massive scale um, because you can essentially now decentralize your entire organization to the point where you can pay them directly to their computer and for their piecemeal work and so I think that <clears throat> that work can take many different forms and entertainment is, is definitely one of them. I mean, if to give you an idea, one of the things that I always found interesting was that um, in big Chinese game companies, um, you know, China, China has some of the biggest MMOs 
in terms of in-game economies that have existed and and whale management of those high spending players was always a very key component and because of the economic dynamics meaning that you know average wages in China were relatively low compared to mm -hmm. the amount that whales spend in games um, you would have individual groups of players who would just be paid employees of the game companies playing against the whales because it was their job to make the whales experience as good as possible in the game so when they're playing in the game they're actually playing against the staff essentially in the game because they're subsidizing those people playing and that's actually no different interesting that's a really good story. I didn't I didn't know that, um, and it makes a lot of sense. And it also answers partially my 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 next question that I was going to ask, which is which was, you know, how do you see a significant part of a player base earning money from a game becoming sustainable? Right, where is the value being created? Mm. Um, and is your answer to that what you just said that you have one very small parts of the player base which essentially. Um, you know, funds the others because they're the whales and they are willing to spend a lot of money on it? Yes, I think there's that. And I think there's the idea that if we're really building a metaverse, then you're going to have in-game economies that are very complex. So it's not just simply going to be, you know, one person fighting and one person defending in the old-fashioned sort of view of mm -hmm. games, but you're going to have mm -hmm. complex in-game economies much more like, I think, if anything has shown us the way, it's probably something like EVE Online because mm -hmm. that's a sophisticated in-game economy that is essentially a blockchain game that's 20 years old, if you will, because that community has been coordinating themselves on a mass player basis to perform tasks for years. And I think we'll see the same in a lot of blockchain game communities where it's not just fighting games and battle games, but it's city builder games. It's games where people are simulating what we do in the physical world. And as part of those simulations, they're doing work and people get, you know, and, and so there will be players who get enjoyment out of the fact that they're working. You know, lots of us have many hobbies that other people would consider work, but we find them pleasurable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I know you probably were aware of this. Um, there was a lot of contention a few months ago around the centralization of Web3, where there's a lot of, you know, small number of players who own a lot of the, net the different networks because they were early, they invested early. There's, you know, if you looked at centralization of a lot of, you know, just blockchain networks like Ethereum, um, it's... It scores pretty badly on the uh, the Gini coefficient um, of centralization of, of that you can calculate for a country. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something of concern to you? No, I think I think it's just a reflection of the fact that we're still early. And if you think about it, um, you know, the the flippant comment would be, well, it's not that different from the physical world. Um, but I think um, but I think that it's just a reflection of the fact that um, we have so few users. I mean, honestly, when you think of it's hard because we live in a bit of a bubble focused on this industry. Um, mm -hmm. But this is an industry that attracted, what, $20 billion of investment last year. And uh, and there are apparently about four or five million players. <laughs> so it's a very, very small industry. And as yeah. you think about bringing on another 100 million players, all of a sudden that ownership decentralizes very quickly. That's fair. Yeah. 
How do you think around digital property rights and IP within the world of Web3? Sure. Um, this is something I, I have, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot around a lot and it's, it's complex. Sure. Um, it's actually, um, it's relatively clear. The idea is that it needs to be, you, you need to think about it in a way that still works within the framework of intellectual property and copyright law that we have because your ability to enforce copyright is founded in in law. And so when I think about NFTs, and this is how I explain it to licensors that we um, work with, when you create an NFT that has, uh, you know, an NFT is in and of, is in and of itself an end product, which means that, <clears throat> for example, I can, <clears throat> excuse me, I can go outside and take a picture of my car and I can make it an, into an NFT of a photograph of my car. <clears throat> and I own the copyright to that photograph because I created that photograph. But if I want to make a playable NFT in my, you know, rev racing game of my Volkswagen van that's sitting outside, I can't do that because I don't own the IP to the design of that van. I can take a photo because I own the van and it's my car, but I don't own the IP of the car. I only own the car and there's a difference. Um, and the same thing happens with the NFT so that I can sell an NFT of that car um, only if I own the copyright, like a 3D model of the car as an NF playable NFT. I can only do that if I have the copyright from the original creator of that intellectual property. Um, because otherwise, if I don't have their permission, then I'm violating copyright and I'm subject to, to being sued by them for doing so. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Um Interesting. I always ask a similar question to all of my guests, and that is, um, could you share with us a bold prediction about blockchain games? <laughs> a bold prediction. My yes. bold, would it, would it be bold to say that all games will be blockchain games within the next five years? Actually, I, I consider that bold, but you already, you already said that. <laughs> Anna, so maybe. <laughs> um, but I think, <clears throat> I think that's um, another bold prediction. I think a, I think a bold prediction will be that um, it's the unknown that's the excitement. Meaning that I think that if we look back to when NBA Top Shot came out and Axie Infinity was already out, um, I don't know that anybody would have ever expected what would have subsequently happened to Axie Infinity. And so I think that the bold prediction is that this year... Um, we will see more of these kind of unforeseen events that have this this level and magnitude of implications for the wider industry. Because, you know, go back not even 12 months ago and the idea of play to earn and the idea of a guild and, you know, how many other ideas did we not even have yet as an industry? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet that's all anybody's talked about for the last six months. That's true. So my prediction, prediction, my prediction is not that I I can predict something, but that the unpredictable will happen <laughs> this year. Okay, that's pretty safe. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I like it. I like it. Good. Um, all right, this was really fascinating, um, Robbie. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. Um, yeah, this this was you know the interview with Robbie Young from Animoca Brands. We hope you enjoyed. And um, with that, the Metacost is out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye.